Those in the book of Revelation take, into, take off and head for Revelation 14. Revelation 14 as we get started this morning. And while you're turning to Revelation 14, and if you didn't get notes, somebody might be kind enough to walk through, let's just do a little bit of a survey. Name a sickness kids get more than adults. Chicken pox. Anything else kids get? Earaches, measles. Moms, here's what they said. Tonsillitis, strep, ear infection, chicken box, flu. Name a favorite food of kids. Chicken nuggets? Mac and cheese? Scrapple? Who said scrapple? You feed that to your grandkid? Oh, she doesn't know any better. You just, oh my word. Prayer request, pray for Chris's grandkid. Oh, my word. Here we go. Ice cream, candy, peanut butter and jelly, pizza, french fries, cheese and Macs, chicken nuggets. Name something you, for which you get a warranty. So last time I asked this, about two years ago, somebody said their husband. Uh, they don't give them. <laughs> Car, house, appliances. What else? Okay, here's what they got. Appliance, computer, watch. Do you, have you ever gotten a warranty with your watch? Can you really? Yeah, well, mine are $9.99, so I don't get a warranty. Car. Here's something else. Name an event that takes place at a church normally. Now, remember, this is unchurched people answering this. Oh, bingo. I didn't think about that. It's not up there, but that's a good one. Okay, funeral. Now, that's seat. Weddings. What'd you say? Okay. Here's what these, this survey said. Religious concerts, funerals, communion, Bible studies, prayer services, wedding. I'm surprised they didn't have bingo. That really surprised me because our, growing up in the community we had, bingo was the big thing. You know, made the church money. Um, name another name for the devil. Lucifer. Lucifer. Beelzebub. Satan. What else? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And again, this isn't from a church survey, but these people said beast, serpent, dragon, Lucifer, and Satan was number one. Now, a lot of the names for him come right out of the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And so what we, we've already discussed, Revelation 12. But as we get into the study, I, people frequently say, oh, the book of Revelation is so hard to understand. You know, there are ways to understand things that if you just sit and think them through, they are, they are very clear. But initially, when you look at them, they seem really confusing. Your initial reaction is confusing or can you read it? Is that right? Okay. You figured it out, right? Okay. So you have a familiarity with enough that you could figure it out even though it wasn't as blatantly clear to say a child. Okay. But you have enough reasoning ability 
you have enough background that you can figure it out. <laughs> now somebody's sitting there saying, I can't figure it out at all. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm not trying to demean you. But generally, we can pick it out. That's the same thing with the book of Revelation. If you have a general idea of Bible and you take the time to go through something as, and it is complicated, okay, at, at places and at times, and it takes study. It just doesn't come, you know, quickly, real simply. That's the way the book of Revelation is. And as we've gone through, we've been trying to just help you to get an idea of how the book flows so that when you study it, you know, it just helps. Let me, let me add this. Every time I study the book of Revelation, I get more out of it. It just explains more seems to come together. But what comes together at this point in my life didn't come together years ago. It took time and rehearsing. And so as we've gone through the book of Revelation, we said that Satan's name show up in chapter 12. See if from your memory you can kind of fill in the blanks to these statements about what was in chapter 12. There's an angelic war in heaven that Satan... Do you remember what happens in that angelic war? He loses. <clears throat> he loses. As a result, <clears throat> he loses this war. It's, Satan ends up coming to the earth with great what? Great anger, great wrath. Okay? And part of the reason is he knows, he knows his time is short. How long does the passage say he has? Three and eight, yeah, the, the context of the passage, yeah. It doesn't say he, in that verse, but it says in the context that uh, he talks about the 42 months. So he has three and a half years left. Satan goes after one group of particular, uh, people in particular. That is the, right, the Jews. And God supernaturally protects them and delivers them time and time again. Then the story continues, the future story, that Satan empowers... A certain individual to help him try to carry out the attacks. Antichrist, or he's called the beast. He becomes very powerful and demands that people do what? Worship him as, yeah, even in the temple. His partner is the false prophet. He supports him by performing miracles, many different types of supernatural deeds. And together they develop a system whereby people must take something or they won't be able to buy or sell. Okay, the mark of the beast. And we know that number to be, yeah, yeah. And so the, the, they will do what to those who resist them? Okay, they're, gonna, they're going to have a, a death sentence on anybody. So it's a very, <clears throat> a very hard time that last three and a half years of that tribulation period. And so in response to that, God adds, uh, has chapter 14, where despite the activities and successes of the Antichrist, all of a sudden God will work to just stop them, slow them down, <coughs> save souls, and he will bring many people to salvation. What does God use? What, are, what things are mentioned or uh, individuals are mentioned in Revelation 14 that God uses to bring people to himself? Okay. First thing he mentions, what did you say, Lloyd? The 144,000. Those are the first ones mentioned in Revelation 14. So despite all, all the attacks, God is protecting these people, and they are the evangelists. Then somebody else, what, did God, what else does God use the rest of chapter 14? Okay. 
the angels are going to, he's going to have three angels who are going to be declaring the first one preaches the gospel, the second one announces that Babylon is fallen, is fallen in the midst of all this, and the third one pronounces judgment against all of those who have taken the mark of the beast and followed Antichrist, all indicative that even though evil is having a heyday, there is going to be payday one day. And so with that context, we continue in chapter 14 and we read where he says, verse, uh, verse 12 and 13, that here is the, the patience of the believers, or literally, he says, here's the perseverance of the saints who are being persecuted, that they are being kept by God, and even those who die, he says, they're going to be promoted, they're going to be uh, rewarded, and they're going to have rest from all their labors one day. Then we come to this section where we read these words. In verse 14, I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud of one uh, and upon the cloud one sat like the son of man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in the sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also with a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar, which had power over the fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, and her grapes are, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city. The blood came out of the winepress, even under the horse's bridle, by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. What is he talking about? Okay, here, let's let's put this together. He's going to talk about two different harvests. That's what's clear out of these verses. There is a grain harvest. And then he's going to talk about a grape harvest or a wine harvest. Jesus used this same analogy, if you remember. So we're combining other scripture. Do you remember any time Jesus said that there's going to be a harvest taking place and some things will be thrown into the fire? Anybody remember what we're talking about? The wheat and the chaff, okay? Or the tares that were mixed in. Do you remember what Jesus is talking about? And he gave a parable and he answered, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the word. The good seeds are the son of the kingdom. But the tares are those who are sown by the wicked one who is Satan. Okay. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus has already predicted using the analogy of a grain harvest. Taking that, let's jump back to what he's talking about in this chapter. Then he says there's not only a reaping, a harvesting of the world, so to speak. He says there is also going to be a wine harvest, a grape harvest we've already read about. Both of these harvests have some things in common. They both have angels that are involved. They both have sickles 
that are involved. They both have a reaping that is going to be involved. And they both deal with end time events. Now jumping ahead a little bit, I think here's what the two events are. The grain harvest is representing the next seven judgments. The bold judgments that are going to be talked about in chapters 15 and 16. The idea of the grape harvest, he's talking about the bloodletting in a certain area that's going to be so deep right outside of Jerusalem. To, if I understand it right, it's Armageddon, which is going to be talked about in the next chapter. But he's giving us an inkling, tying together other prophecies and saying, here's what the gist behind the scenes is. And then in chapter 15, he's going to give all the details. And so a simple approach for you and me right now is let's just talk about three different aspects of these two harvests. Talk about, whoops, okay, talk about the reaper and he highlights the ripeness, I don't know how else to say it, of each of the harvest, something he says about them, both of the idea about the harvest, it's ready to be plucked. I want you to catch, it's very interesting what he says. And then the actual harvest or the reaping. So let's do the first one, okay, uh, if I get my finger where I'm supposed to be. Let's talk about the first one, the grain harvest. He talks about the reaper. Who is it? He's in, we're in t- now in verses 14 and 15, 16. Who's the reaper? Are you going to call him the, the grim reaper? <coughs> Who do you think it is? Why do you think it's Jesus? says, like the Son of Man, anything else? What's that? He's got a golden crown. Okay, anything else that distinguishes him, this one? Okay, where's he at? He's seated on a white cloud. Okay, so if we tear it apart, the Son of Man is a term frequently used of Jesus Christ by Jesus himself, but also in Daniel's prophecy about the bringing in of the kingdom of God, he talks about the Son of Man shall bring in the kingdom of God. So Jesus had used that. He's sitting on a cloud which we have frequently seen already that Christ has ascended in on high, that he is you know, coming through the clouds, that aspect, that concept. Uh, in, in the idea of the sitting that some would suggest <coughs> is that he's been waiting for the right time, for the okay to carry out that it is the end of the days at this point. And so he has a golden crown. The crown this time <coughs> is, inter- excuse me, I've, I was sick this week and with a head cold and stuff, so I still have the residuals. Sorry if it distracts you. Um, the, the golden crown on his head, anybody have a footnote? There are two types of crowns in the Bible. There is the diadem and there is the stephanos. The diadem indicates... Okay. The diadem is used for somebody with the authority as a ruler. Okay. The Stephanos is the type of crown we get. It is indicative of a reward. A reward in the sense of accomplishment. Achieving your, your goal. Winning the, the, the victory, so to speak. Which one do you think is here? The diadem is what we would think it would be, right? Because he is a ruler. That's the irony of this text. Which one do you obviously realize it is now? It's the Stephanoi or the Stephanos. 
So it's bringing into concept that not only his lordship, by it's not highlighting that, it's highlighting the idea that he is the victor. Which makes perfect sense because up to this point, who seems to be victorious? Satan, okay? But who is the ultimate victor? victor? Jesus is going to have this Stephanos, the victor crown, <coughs> upon his head. So at his coming, what you have is this idea that Jesus is the conqueror. Now, when he first came, did Jesus present himself as a conqueror? No. Did the Jews have a problem with that? Yeah, because what did they think the Messiah was going to do? Right, get rid of the Romans and bring victory for the Jews. And so Jesus didn't do that. In fact, if we made the comparisons of Jesus' first and second coming, which you're very familiar with, but if we just compared his first advent and second, he came in meekness as a servant, yes. Okay, he was gentle and humble, Okay? He came to seek and to save the lost. He came and suffered God's wrath for the sinners. Okay? By contrast, okay? he, uh, and he came to sow the gospel seed. Let's make a contrast between them. In his second coming, does he come meek as a servant? What's he come like? Okay, he's going to come, you know, as the judge of everybody. He came in gentleness and humility. Now he's coming in majesty, splendor, glory, whatever terms you want to use. He is second coming. He is going to come to judge and to rule over the lost people. Okay, we know that he will come to pour out God's wrath on sinners. First Thessalonians, that passage. Second Thessalonians, one, that passage of taking vengeance with with a fiery, with a burning fire that we talked about last week. He's going to come to reap the harvest. This is the same as Matthew 24, that when he comes, sends out the angels and they gather everybody from all different nations. And so the reaper is Jesus. He has this sharp sickle in his hands. You know what that sickle is. You understand. You've seen the pictures that it's just used with the idea that when you're going through the field, you are basically mowing down everything there in this wide approach. (coughs) And so Jesus is going to be doing that. The ripeness of it is interesting, the words that he used. Because the angel comes out of the temple and says to him, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time is come for you to reap. The harvest of the earth is ripe. Does anybody have a footnote, something with that idea, the, the harvest of the earth is ripe? Is rotten? Is that what you have? Okay. What's that? dried? Okay, you would typically think that when it's translated, the harvest is ripe, you would think it's a positive. Right? No? Yes? Okay, so I read it and go, oh, it's a positive, like it's what, you, what they have is really the, the more uh, true to the original. The word that he uses here, by the way, this angel who comes out, it's different from the previous three angels that have been the making the pronouncements. The angel is coming out of the temple, which is indicative that he's sent by who? God himself, telling Jesus it's time, giving Jesus that message. Now is the time to execute the idea. So thrust in, the word for ripe is the idea of it is useless, it is bad, the harvest stinks, what are we going to do with it? What do you do if you have a bad uh, crop? Okay, get rid of it. Okay, you're going to destroy it. That's the word that's used here. That is very interesting in this text, okay, that it is so bad 
which makes perfect sense. Is the world as a whole really rotten to the core? To the point that it is... Yeah. Okay. So he makes that very clear, and he says, for the time has come. Up to this point, Jesus has been sitting patiently, knowing he's going to judge, but why has he not executed the judgment? Yeah, we're right back to the grace of God, the mercy of God. He is not willing that, and he should perish. He is giving mankind as a whole (coughs) another chance to repent. But God tells Jesus at this point, we've reached the limit. By the way, has up to this point, have the seal judgments have taken place in the first three and a half years? Has God given a gospel witness while people have been suffering all these different calamities? What have people done? Yeah, remember they run to the rocks and the hills and they say, oh, rocks and the, yeah, into the rocks and caves and they cry, save us from the judgment of God and they don't repent. But do they know? Okay, you got the 144,000, got the angels. Is, this, is the same thing happening in the second set of judgments, the trumpet judgments? Yeah. Same thing is happening. They recognize it's the hand of God, but what do they do? They reject. They blaspheme. And so God has been patient, and God is saying, we're at the very end of this time period. It is now. Now we're done. Patience has run out. Time has run out. The time of grace is over. And then the reaping takes place. He thrusts in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Jesus is the one that will bring this final judgment. And it is, is it the set of all of this combined with just the uh, final rapid judgment? It seems to me that the, the, trumpet ju- um, the bold judgments are, the seven judgments are boom, 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 boom. In just rapid order, building right atop another within, I don't know, days, weeks, in the very end. And so it seems to suggest this is it. God's just going to let it out. And What's that? Yeah, yeah, it's just going to, you know, those poor people in that time period, which we're going to touch on. Oh, no, no, it'll be far worse than everything else. In fact, just to jump ahead, do you remember what it said when, uh, in the trumpet judgments that when the trumpets came, how much of the water was affected? The sea waters. One third. How much of the, na- of the, of the um, fresh waters? One third. When you go and read now the, the bold judgments, how much of the oceans? It'll be all of it. Okay, how much of the fresh water? All of it. And so it'll really get intense, much more than what, what's... And, and we thought it's been bad enough in our study. The harvest of the grapes goes right along with the idea that judgment day is here. And so this too will be to those on the earth. And uh, do you remember? Now, he uses the analogy of grapes. Has he made any reference in the last couple chapters dealing with Antichrist, dealing with the false prophet, has he made any reference to them with, with uh, grapes, drunkenness, anything at all? He's going to talk about Babylon, the city, has made people drunk with her wine. Okay, And now he's going to use this same concept of Babylon who had made everybody drunk with her wine He's going to use wine, the same idea, against them. 
that with that concept. Now they will reap what they have sown. And so when he says at this time the reaper, the reaper is not, we would think, oh, it's probably going to be Jesus again. He says it is not Jesus, but it's another angel, a different angel. Then all the others comes out of the temple. Again, he has a sharp sickle as well. And so he's going to carry out the judgment. He's from by the altar. Okay, remember the saints that have died have been praying at this altar avenge us, O Lord. And he has said, wait, wait, wait. That happened since the very beginning of the tribulation, Revelation chapter 6. And now he comes out of that place where the saints have been praying, stop this, take avenge, and now the angel steps out at the behest of God. And the vengeance is going to take place. And so the angel encourages another angel, there's two of them that are going to be here, that we're going to... um, take action. And the loud voice has the idea of do it quickly. Let's get this done. And so with God's authorization, he swings the sickle and gathers the clusters from the earth. Now, it's time, the ripeness, here's a different idea, where he says in verse 18, the other angel came out from the altar, which had the power of the fire, cried with a loud voice, and he said unto him that had the sickle, thrust in your sharp sickle, okay, again, amplifying the idea that you are totally capable of doing this with a sharp sickle. Gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully... What's your Bible read now? Okay, what's the wording? Anybody have a footnote this time? What's that? Juicy? Is that... You have a footnote with that? Okay, okay. You're right. You're absolutely right, Pooch. It's the idea that they're fully ripe. The wording that he uses here is the idea that they are so full they're ready to burst. Okay? Is the world ready to burst with evil? Okay, in that sense, yes. Okay? That they're ready to burst at its prime. Seems to be that the evil on the earth is so great that it's about to burst. This angel, the reaping, they're cut, they're gathered into a wine press. Now, remember when they take the grapes and they put them into a wine press, what did they do with the grapes? Put yourself back in ancient Bible days. What did they do with those grapes then? Okay, stomp on them. How much? Okay, they're just going to, they're just going to get, you know, um, every, every, juice that they get out of it, they're totally smashed in the winepress of God's wrath. Okay? Yeah, this idea that he's going to smash them so much so that it says the juices now will flow outside of the city. Uh, when he starts talking about city, what do, what's your mind got to go to? Jerusalem. Okay. Unless it's uh, going to be identified differently, the city typically, and in this context, you would think, okay, God's involved. It's going to be the city that is on his heart. So it's Jerusalem. Remember now that he's going to clarify, even within the same context, that the juices are, are representing bloodshed. He's going to make that clear, where in the one verse he's talking about the idea that uh, the wine press is trodden without, and then he says that the blood will come out. So he's making it very clear what he's talking about. Jerusalem is not destroyed, okay, because the bloodshed is outside the city, but the idea is that it's going to be so great, it'll flow for 200 miles up to the level of the horse's bridle. Joel 3 has this same picture given. In Joel 3, talking about in a predictive sense, he describes that in the last days there's going to be a great battle that's going to be in the end days. It's going to be in the valley of... Do you remember what Joel talks about? The valley of 
the valley of Jehoshaphat is what he flows. In other words, the valley of decision. And you and I would understand, we all know what this decision is. This is consequential decision here. A valley of judgment decision. And it parallels what we're going to read about in Revelation 16. It introduces the idea of Armageddon, but it doesn't give details. We're going to get details when we go a little bit further in the next chapter. And so what do we know from all this? We know God's wrath at that very end time after he's been saying, here's what Satan's been doing. Here's what Antichrist's been doing. Here's what false prophet has been doing. I've been opposing them. I've been sending my messengers. I've been, been um, preserving the souls of my people. And I'm going to put an end to this. I will. And when I put an end, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be devastating. And it's going to be complete. And it's going to be the end of mercy. He gives that information, and then he starts giving the details this time. And that's going to be the next chapter that we jump into. And so he's talking about the unsaved who oppose God will die, most all of them. And as much as he's been trying to reach those people, the majority of those people will reject. And God will end the final victory. So the bottom line of this chapter is God will win. Then we go into chapter 15. Chapter 15 then starts a whole nother sign. He begins it with the idea, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled the wrath of God. He has just talked about the winepress of the wrath of God. Now he's going to give you the details of how this wrath of God is carried out in specifics not in symbolism, but in detail. And so when he talks about a new vision, it's an interesting phrase. This is the third time that it comes up in the book of Revelation that he uses this phrase where he says, I saw a sign in heaven. There was two other times so far where he says, I saw a sign in heaven that he, that he designates something in particular. Do you remember any of the other two occasions? They weren't that long ago. Well, in the book, for you and me, about a year ago. Um, The one is when he says, I saw a sign of heaven, a woman clothed with the stars and standing on the moon. Do you remember who that was? Okay, it was the Jewish people. It was in chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, where he's going to start giving details about what happens to the Jewish people. And then he says that again, he says, I saw another sign in heaven, a great red dragon. So this is the third time that it happens. I don't know the parallel or significance other than it's caught John's attention. And John starts describing this. He says there are seven angels. We're talking about great and marvelous beings, which you and I understand. And he says they have, and I find this phrase to be worth pausing and thinking about. They have the seven, even the, the seven last plagues. The word is plagae. It has the idea of wounds or blows. Uh, because in them, the wrath of God is going to be completed. It's going to be brought to its, its fullness. What strikes me is when he says that these are the last plagues, he's telling me a couple different things. Chronologically, this set of plagues does what chronologically with the seals and the trumpets? Okay, this is the end. Chronologically, it's after them. 
or towards the very end. It also indicates that he has already saying that by, com- by comparison <clears throat> of these last plagues, it seems to imply that the others could have been called plagues as well. They're called judgments, but... <clears throat> excuse me. So he's including that idea that these are the last of these types of plagues that are coming from God. Which, by the way, when, as soon as you think of plagues, what, what story comes to your mind? Egypt, okay, the judgment of God upon them. And so all of this has been the seals, the trumpets. It's all been, as he's saying here, it's all been forms of plagues, blows, wounds, uh, divine judgment, which, if I understand this text right, they too have been the outpouring of God's wrath, but it's going to come to a completion, to a fullness, to a head at this point. And that makes perfect sense because Revelation chapter 6 says the wrath of God has come with the uh, seven, uh, seven seal judgments. And so taking them, he starts, he starts this off. He says what he sees with the angels is something else before he gives the details. He said, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with the fire, and then that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of the glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the song of the Lamb. And then he goes on and gives some of the details. And so this idea of he sees this large sea, but he doesn't say it's a sea. He says, what does he see? Like, okay? And so when you, when you think of a sea, he says it's like a sea of glass. Again, he can't fully comprehend. But why does he use the idea of a sea? Immense? Would that, be, would that seem right? If you were back in Bible days and you were writing, you probably didn't use the, uh, you, you would use the waters, you would use the seas to be something as vast as the, you know, the yeah, and so it seems to me that what he's talking about is something, and by the way, it's very similar. He's talked about a, this sea idea of this glass by the throne of God earlier. <clears throat> but it seems to me that what he's talking about is he's saying something very huge, vast, before God. This platform that is just reflective, that is vast. But what is different about this sea? He talks about it in description and ability. He says it's mingled with what? Yeah, usually, usually when you say sea, you aren't thinking fire on the sea, typically. But again, this is a sea of this glass that's unusual in that there's fire. But also, typically, people aren't standing on the waters. So it's not a literal ocean. It's the idea of something that's vast, something that's, you know, impacting. That those who are standing is the real, the real thing here, the, the attention getter. The focus is the people standing on the sea. Who are they? Are they angels? Piece it together. Read, the, read what it, their description. It's clear who these are. How, why do you say they're tribulation saints? Okay, because what did they get, what did they have to deal with? They had to deal with the beast, the mark of the beast, okay, He's making it clear. They overcame this. You know, they had victory over the beast, over his... What, what's the beast's image? 
Go back to a couple chapters. What is the image of the beast? What's it, refla- resp- uh, what's it referring to? Oh, surely you remember this. What did false prophet make? He made the idol. That was huge. And he gave it the ability to speak, okay, artificial intelligence, okay, gave it the ability to speak, and what did everybody have to do? Okay, so when we're talking about the image of the beast, we're talking about the concept of worshiping who? Okay, yeah, Satan ultimately, Antichrist face to the face, but you're worshiping Satan. So if you remember all this imagery that he's using here, they had victory over the beast, and there's two different beasts that have been mentioned, okay? There's the Antichrist, there's the false prophet, and there's the cry, Satan, they're all called beasts at different times, over his image, which would be the Antichrist, and over his mark, and over the number, okay? And remember that, during putting that all together, those people who did not worship the beast, those people who did not take his mark, what was the consequences that they could be facing? Without the mark, they could not... Okay? Which means that without taking all that, they refused to follow him, worship him. Yes? They were opposed to him, which probably meant that they suffered. Okay, they would have died. They would have been people who are killed in that tribulation period. So we're talking that he is seeing in heaven a large number of people who have been martyred for the cause of Christ by rejecting Antichrist by resisting Antichrist. And what's interesting is where are they standing? Before the throne in heaven, you know, they're alive, even though they may have lost their earthly life. They are standing on the sea, and they have the harps of God. And so these people are those who have lived during the tribulation. They've, con- they've survived up to this point, uh, lost their lives because of their faith, but now they're holding harps. They are singing songs. And he gives us the song that they're singing. Okay? <clears throat> what's the song? What, what's the song of Moses? What'd you, what'd you say? Uh, you, they were thankful they were delivered. Okay, you were taking it back to Exodus. The book of Exodus. Okay? There is, in the, in the Old Testament which we think this is what it's got to be, is there's a song that is given in the book of Exodus where the people break out in song as Moses has led them through... Okay, not into the wilderness yet. He's worded, well, into the wilderness, and then they, they were being chased. What big event happened? Okay, the cross, the um, opening of the Red Sea, they go through what happens to Pharaoh's army. Yeah, they get wiped out. And so that's the first song that's recorded in the Old Testament that, again, I'm saying record, not ever sung, but the one that's recorded. And they sing, they're singing a song of Moses. And he says they also are singing the song of the Lamb. What is the song of the Lamb? Uh, is he referring to chapter 5? Chapter 5, what was the song that people sang about the Lamb? Worthy is the Lamb. Okay, who is what? Who is slain? Okay. And so you have these ideas of, of 
Are they singing those same words? And then you take and read. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. <coughs> they sing the song of the Lamb, the saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For you only are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments are made uh, manifest. And so if we take that and go back to Revelation 5, <coughs> Revelation 5, and we read, starting with verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And then it says every creature chimed in, verse middle of verse 13, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne unto the Lamb forever. And the four angels say, it's not the same words. If we were to go back to Exodus 15 and read what is there, it's not the same exact words. What does he mean then? They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. If it's not the same words. Go ahead. It means the same thing. What were you going to say? The theme. Okay. That's exactly what it made, must mean. Is that is there a is there a um, a continuous theme? Okay, that they were singing about when they when they were singing about the song of Moses. And I, this is going to press your memory. They're singing the song. What are they rejoicing and what are they praising God for? What's that? Deliverance. Okay. Do they talk about his power? Sure. Do they talk about he how he got rid of the enemy? They do. Okay? They talk about his mercy. And so they have that idea. When we read Revelation 5, are we talking about his power? Yes? His greatness. Are we talking about his deliverance? Yes. Okay, so you're talking that idea that we're talking God's faithfulness, God's deliverance, and how God will judge those uh, who are his enemies. It's the same themes that are coming out. And these saints are singing these songs. And the song that they're singing at this time, these people, it means something to them. It really is impacting that they are singing and saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of saints. Now, pause for a second. What have they just gone through? Put this in context of those, these people and their worship that they're giving. What have they just experienced? I, well, in recent days, what have they probably experienced? Yeah, yeah. Was it easy on earth? Did they suffer? Did they, did they suffer loss? Not just for themselves. Probably some of them experienced loss of who? Friends, family, fellow worshipers. Okay. What would be the emotion that they would be feeling? Could there have been sadness? Sure, sure. And they get to glory, and what happens? Is their perspective given? Is their anger held on to? Is there regret? Do you read any regret that, God, you weren't fair to me? Do you, do you sense that at all? 
Do you sense any, any attitude of why did you allow me to go through that? Not at all. But did they go through the ultimate? They gave their lives for, for Christ. They didn't suffer for wrong that they made bad choices. They suffered for making the right choices. And what is their attitude? I think I think this is this is tremendous. Now, if we compare these two songs, okay, and we have all these different ideas, but this is the thought that just it's just riveting to me that the singing of their praises, even though they lived in an ungodly environment, and they were able to live godly in an ungodly environment, they didn't succumb to it, but they're not. They're not upset that, God, you didn't give me a better life. They are not any, in any way, there's no hint of complaint, regret, resentment at all. Okay? Instead, they're, they're totally focused on, I'm going to praise you, Lord. It may have hurt, but I'm going to give you praise because great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. And then, they, then what title do they give him? King of Saints. Which basically says, whatever you did was right. You were in control. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For only you are holy. For all nations shall come and worship thee. For thy judgments, they will be made manifest. And I'm thinking this morning, man, when we come to worship, it is so easy to carry our griefs, our gripes, our difficulties into the worship and say, woe is me, you great God, you wonderful God. You give me victory as I have to suffer through such a horrible existence. Victory in Jesus. No. When we worship, we need to think, He is God. He is good. He is only good. And sing praises and give Him glory. Because in the end, what happens? We win. We win all because of Him.